Welcome to Pardon the Confusion. This is Paul Arnold, your host, and we're back for a new type of Pardon the Confusion podcast. This is called Pardon the Confusion Masterclass. Yes, maybe I'm watching too many YouTube advertisements for Steve Martin promoting his class for comedy or Natalie Portman for acting. Can you believe that? Or Ron Howard for directing. But along with Ernest Watts, who is my senior by several years, we're going to talk about the best of the 1970s. We're not going to sell you any Time Warner CD packages or anything like that, but we're going to be talking about the sports of the 1970s since there's no new sports on right now with the COVID-19 virus going around. And so Professor Watts and Professor Arnold are now in class. And Ernest, I was born in 1962. So this was a prime age development for me between 8 and 18 years old of when I really fell in love with sports. I created my sports loyalties. And you're a little older than I am. You were 14 to 24 in the 70s? Yes, Yes, sir. So how about that was a different time than now, and you're a little older. Uh, the, was it a carryover from the 60s, like drugs, sex, and parties? <laughs> not for well, you, maybe? Uh, not for me. I mean, it was it was different in, I think we, we came from a, a very, very regionalized country to a more unified thing. And, you know, college basketball was kind of like that because – uh, it was a different world in extent that there was no national contract. There were no games on TV. Very, the first national game on television was 1968, and that was the Houston Cougars UCLA game. And that was done by there was a uh, a consolidation group called TVS, not TBS, but TVS. Eddie Einhorn and Jerry Reinsdorf owned. If those names sound familiar, they're the owners of the White Sox and the owners of the uh, Bulls. Chicago Bulls right now. And it was just a regional basketball, college basketball at that time was was considered, my gracious, a, a minor sport. It Yikes. was very, very regionalized. No March Madness. Uh, no March Madness. I mean, you would occasionally, uh, you would get these regional games. And because I lived up until 1970, I lived near the, between the Baltimore and the Philadelphia markets, I would get to see the Final Four games. And when I moved down to the South, uh, C.D. Chesley, who was a broadcasting magnet down in the South, put together a regional network for ACC games, which ran all over the East Coast and really fed ACC and getting the best talent because a lot of kids, uh, parents in New York could watch their kids play because there were no national games. Uh, The first, NBC did not take over national broadcasts of, of the Final Four, not the NCAAs, but the Final Four until 1973. Mm-hmm. ESPN did not broadcast the first and second rounds until 1979. Right. So you, you see, you know, it was, you heard on the radio, you heard word of math, you, you more heard from the various <laughs> magazines, Sports Illustrated, Sporting news. It was the dark ages. We didn't have internet. We didn't have ESPN for most of that decade. And you'd read about in the newspaper. And you love Sports Illustrated. That was the main way to get great in-depth sports news. And you've saved them for years. What's your oldest Sports Illustrated? Uh, The uh, Super Bowl V, which was when the Colts beat uh, the uh, Cowboys. The Blunder Bowl. You should have framed that. Did you frame it? No, no, I've got it put away. I've got a little wrapper of some type. I've got most of the Super Bowls after that I've got and a lot of a lot of the NCAAs because and another thing you didn't realize the, the tournament was so much different. It was only thirty two teams. So people talk about the, the dynasty of UCLA, which ran from nineteen sixty three to nineteen seventy five. Well, a lot of that was they only had to play two games to get to the final four. There were only thirty-two teams, right? And, and only the teams, only the teams that won their conference made the tournament. And most conferences had a rule that your first place team went to the NCAA, and your second place team went to the NIT. The NIT had as much esteem as the NCAA's to about the middle of the seventies. Yeah, to win an NIT championship was was considered just as much as winning. I mean that that really changed when they expanded it. And when they expanded where multiple teams 
could go into the tournament because it was 75 when the ACC allowed it. And what and, drove it was the money, right? TV oh, money drove it. Money. Yeah, TV money. It's when they started putting the, the games on national broadcasts, that was the drive for it because you, you would see these, even the change of when the games were. Because up until NBC took it over in 73, the two semifinal, final four games would be played on Thursday night, one at 7 and one at 9.30. <laughs> yeah. And the championship game would be at 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. At 1 o'clock, they would show the consolation game because the two losers uh, would play each other in a consolation game, a third-place game. That was up until... The last one of that was, uh, let me see, when uh, Reagan was shot. So that was 80? 81. 81, yeah. That was the last time. That's when they kind of realized because there was uh, a lot of people didn't know whether they were going to play. That game was Carolina and Indiana, mm -hmm. which Indiana won. And a lot of people were, I think, Virginia and LSU played the consolation game. And there was a lot of putting off the entire game, and then they decided to go ahead with it. But then they realized – why are we playing a third-place game? And not only the championship, but every round, you know, the four teams would play in the Eastern semifinal, the Western semifinal, the Midwest, and Mid-East. They'd play a third-place game also. And now we say, forget the losers. Let's just play ball. The other yeah. thing that our listeners need to know if they were born before the 80s or, I mean, after the 80s or 90s is, the three-point shot didn't come about in college basketball until 1986. So there's a lot of emphasis on the low-post players, um, give-and-go, pick plays, things like that. So, you know, taking a three-point and just going down dribbling, taking those shots all the time is not the type of game that we watched. And for me, living in Michigan, I would watch the um, local channels would occasionally have a Michigan game or a Michigan State game, but it was always on Saturday, and that was it. That was the only choice you had. And as Ernest mentioned earlier, UCLA just dominated, and that's because of John Wooden. And, folks, if you don't know John Wooden, you know, wake up, check out a few books. He still may be the greatest basketball coach ever. Do you think that's true, Ernest? Wow. It's, it's such a different game. I mean, obviously the comparison is him and Kay. And because he had, and the reason why Kay and Roy and Dean have more tournament wins, again, it goes back to the smaller field back then. So it's it's, it's a different game. It's like comparing Babe Ruth to uh, Okay, uh, let me Barry go a Bond. different way then. Nobody's had a better playing career and coaching career than John Wooden because he was All-American at all Purdue. Yeah, he's the only person who's gone into – the Basketball Hall of Fame as a player and separately as a coach. So you're correct in that. All and right. he went, yeah, at Purdue, he was, but you know, it wasn't just the three point line. There was a lot more, uh, no dunking until 1976. <laughs> so you couldn't dunk the ball. The lane was much, much smaller. And they took the dunking out in 1967 because of Lou Alcindor, who, you know, more as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because he could dunk so easily. They, they changed the rule. They widened the lane for him. So it, 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 but it led to a little creativity. One of the young men that we'll talk about, one of the top 10 players of all time, David Thompson, who had a vertical leap of 44 inches, never got the dunk. So they invented the alley oop. Alley oop actually came from football. There was a wide receiver for the San Francisco, San Francisco 49ers back in the 50s called R.C. Owens. And the quarterback, Bill Kilmer, at that time, wasn't very accurate. So what he would do was <laughs> throw it as high as he could, and R.C. Owens, who was six foot two, could out-jump everybody. Well, NC State, who lost one game in two years mm -hmm. to UCLA, by the way, mm -hmm. they invented a play where they used Thompson, who was only six foot four. Monty Tao was the point guard. He was five foot seven. And he would throw alley-oops. They'd throw a back screen. Uh, Phil Spencer, Tom Burleson, who was the uh, center, the power forward, would do a back screen, and they'd do alley-oops to Thompson. So much that he injured himself on one uh, first-round NCAA play against Pitt where he flipped his foot, caught the shoulder of the <laughs> defender for Pitt, and he flipped his head on the floor, returned at the end of the game, though. but He was so it, high it, in the air that he, he caught his foot on some guy's oh, shoulder? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Man, okay. Hold on, hold on the well, and, and not only that, no third, no no shot clock. I know. Oh, that's right. Time. No shot clock. No TV timeouts because this game was not constructed for TV. But the ball was still round. Yeah, it still had still seams. Round. You still had a hoop. I know yeah. it really is a totally different game than we see now. And in some ways, people liked it better. Um, and we're going to go on to the top 10 players in just a little bit. But the UCLA Bruins just had great players after great players, won five championships during the 70s, amazing games. They would beat uh, the other teams by average of like, um, let me see here, at least by 13 or 14 points every game. Um, and they did a great job. In 1976, though, they didn't win it. The Indiana Hoosiers won it with Bobby Knight. So over the years. What about that team? What's the one thing about that team? Well, the they had last, the last that? team to play an entire season undefeated. Oh, that's right. They were undefeated, thirty-two and zero. They had Kurt Benson, a big blonde white guy. Scott May was a slasher power forward. Quinn Buckner was a guard, and they were their main stars. And that's when Knight really came on the scene as a great coach. Bobby Dickinson was their wing forward. Yeah, they were not only that, they were undefeated going to the NCAAs the year before in 75, and they lost to Kentucky at Kentucky. It was the Middies final, the NCAAs. And a lot of our listeners might know Bobby Knight by throwing a, a chair or <laughs> getting angry or something. But this is when he became a legend in Indiana, and they start calling him the general because he used to uh, play with the Army, right? Or coach Ar- he coached Army. 1970, he took Army to the first time to the NIT, and his point guard Coach for that K. team, yeah, it was Coach K. So there's a lot of blue blood, uh, you know, college basketball royalty in the 70s uh, that influenced a lot of players and a lot of coaches after this, and it was exciting. I mean, I remember watching the basketball games and being like, "This is so intense and such great athletes." Um, and it just got people ready for March Madness when it came around. And as I mentioned earlier, with no three-point shots and low-post players, very important, centers dominated a lot during the 70s. And so we're going to go through our top 10 players, college players, and I'll give my first one, and then we'll alternate. Then I'll let you pick your second one, Ernest, okay? Oh, okay. All righty. I go back to your list because I'm going to cheat off of it. (laughs) (laughs) So not all the time do I send the uh, list or topics to the other co-hosts, but this time I thought it would help with the discussion. And and we're going to comment a little bit about them as we go through. Yes. So we're going to fill up our 50 minutes in a hurry. All right. Memories. Memory. Oh, don't start that. All right. Well, this guy is still heard on TV now, still as an announcer. The number one player for me in the 1970s is Bill Walton. He was he listed himself at 6'11", but most people agree he was over 7 feet. But a little quirk about him, and he's very quirky, he never wanted to be listed as a 7-footer. I mean, he was All-American, Player of the Year two times, um, was a dominant player in many ways, loved Coach John Wooden, but what many people don't realize is he had an older brother named Bruce who was one year older than him, but actually shorter at six foot six. But his brother Bruce played football. And so when they both played on the same high school basketball team in Las Mesa, California, uh, Bill Walton was skinny back then, but he was a better player. So when the other teams would rough up Bill Walton, Good old Bruce came over and gave them the treatment, like uh, an elbow or pushed them over. And sort of the enforcer from early on. But Walton was a guy that knew how to play, um, knew how to pass, had good touch around the net. And as Ernest has already said, he couldn't dunk it. But, man, he just was such a good player. But he always did it a little different. And his pro career was never quite what people thought it could be because of injuries. But during the 70s, no player was as dominant as Walton. But one thing we have to say is that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was known as Lou Alcindor. He went to the pros in 1970, so he's not part of this list. Ernest, do you agree with Bill Walton being the number one player of the can 70s? I, can I pull on Nate here? And I've had the rare pleasure of meeting Bill Walton. Oh, you have. Uh, yes, and he is just like he is on television. That's <laughs> not an act. He had one of the most, and his brother actually played in the NFL with the Cowboys for a while. Uh, he had one of the best 
performance I have saw in the 70s when he went 21 for 22 against Memphis State in the 1972 championship game against Larry Finch and Larry Keenan. Uh, it was just a against great Larry, Larry, and Larry. Is that what Larry, you're Larry, Larry? I mean, he was probably the second best outlet passer I've ever seen, next to Wes Unsell. But his ability, and again, he would subjugate himself for the team. Now, injuries, he had ankle injuries, but he did have he did win two NBA titles uh, with Portland in '83 and uh, Celtics. also Celtics. So he's got two NBA titles. He's a Hall of Famer. It's just injuries, uh, misdiagnosed ankle injury. Uh, he went to San Diego Clippers for a while and really was not treated particularly well, but had a career resurrection with the Celtics. But one of the best passing big men I've ever seen. And, and again, you were right. He didn't want to be listed as seven feet, but again, dominated for three years, but did not win his senior year. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Now I'll go to my top 10 player of the 70s. And that's Pistol Pete Maravich. Ah, this uh, is where we disagree. You said we disagreed one place, and this is it. Pistol Pete only played one year in the 70s, but this is a man who averaged 44 points a game for his career. Let me <laughs> say that one more time. 44 points a game with no three-pointer. And not a ball hog because he averaged shooting 45%, which is a high percentage for a guard at that particular time. He is, again... I liked watching him play more than anybody else. He could pass the ball. He could shoot the ball. I wore the sloppy socks. I let my hair grow long just to mimic him. That's all I wanted to do. <laughs> I mean, I get, I had a little crush on him. I uh, did not have the success in the pros that uh, I thought he would have had in that respect. Again, never played an NCAA uh, tournament game, but again, they only had 32 teams in, but a really remarkable talent. Well, we're going to pretend like some of our people do not know about Maravich's story. Uh, there's a great movie out there called Pistol about how he was raised by his dad to be a great player. His dad was a coach and was the coach at LSU when Pete was there. And, Ernest, you could probably tell a story better than me. Why did he only play one year? What was happening with his dad? Uh, his dad had a severe drinking problem, which was obviously hereditary because Pistol Pete picked it up. He had a substance abuse problem later on himself. And at the same time, his mother had severe mental health issues. So he was dealing with quite a bit. He's actually born in North Carolina, went to Brogdon High School in Raleigh. Uh, ABA offered him his own franchise when he came out, you know, mm -hmm. you, your own franchise and get the own players and recovered. Uh, again, went through recovery in the latter part of his life, uh, accepted, uh, and again, he had a religious conversion, but died at age 40 of a uh, heart anomaly that was not detected while he was doing what he loved, shooting basketball in a rec center at a church. Right. A remarkable story. Very remarkable. And I remember how flashy he was, that he could do things with the ball, that twist it, turn it, bounce it. Uh, whip it around. He was the greatest passer that I ever saw as a kid. I, I, and most coaches would go crazy with a guy like that. Sometimes Dan Patrick on his uh, radio show would talk about how his college coach didn't appreciate some of his extra moves and things like that. He wanted him just to play the straight fundamentals. Pete did things his own way, and it's great to watch some of those old clips of him. So I totally get that flip. I picked Walton above Maravich because of Walton winning uh, two championships, playing for three years, dominating as well. Walton averaged 20 points a game, uh, 15 rebounds a game. Um, and then Pete averaged uh, five assists a game. So you say he's not a ball hog. He scored a ton. He passed it, but amazing player. Uh, let's go to number three, and that'll be my turn now. Uh, I think it's Larry Bird. Um, Larry Bird basically single-handedly carried a team all the way to the championship game. That was Indiana State. And I would imagine only one out of ten people listening could tell me where Indiana State is located in Indiana. And Bird averaged, when he was a co college player, 30 points a game, uh, 13 rebounds, 4.6 assists, and he shot 53%. That's amazing. He was born in Indiana, but like a lot of these players we're going to talk about, they didn't have an easy childhood. Um, his mom and dad 
um, divorced when he was in high school, and then his dad committed suicide a year later. Larry tried to go down to Indiana, the best place to play basketball in Indiana, uh, the state of Indiana, according to most people down there, and he couldn't handle the stress of being there. So he dropped out and went to a small school called Northwood Institute down in Florida, and then he enrolled at Indiana State in Terre Haute, or Terre Haute, depends on who you are, in 1975. But it's amazing that this guy, the 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 hick from French Lick, basically people talked about, was such an amazing player. And even his his college was amazing. His pro is even more amazing that he could do so much. And such a trash talker. I bet you've seen Larry play basketball, haven't you, Ernest? Oh, multiple times. I've had the I got an opportunity to shake his hand once. He was down for a Hornets game when he was thinking about uh, actually purchasing the Charlotte Hornets. And we didn't get the autograph, but I did get a handshake. Boy, I am starting to sound like Nate, aren't I? <laughs> uh, I mean, and again, he did all this after he had broken his uh, right pointer finger in a softball game. The finger actually points off to a 45-degree angle. And when he left Indiana, and it wasn't because of Bobby Knight. It was essentially that he was a small-town guy. He felt overwhelmed by the big city of Bloomington. I know, Bloomington's so small. Yeah. Well, it's crazy. And, and he went to work on a trash truck. And it, people around him in French Lick said, dude, you're wasting your life, you know. And Bill Hodges, who was the coach at Indiana State, called him up and remembered him from high school basketball and said, listen, We'll do this at your pace. Just come on in. And that was actually closer to French Lick than Bloomington was. And that's why he took that team. And have you ever heard of Indiana State in any <laughs> capacity whatsoever since 1979? And because of him and someone else we're going to talk about, Magic Johnson, that's why the NCAA Final Four is what it is. Mm-hmm. Percentage-wise, you know, not numbers, but percentage-wise, viewership, that Michigan State Indiana State game is the most watched game of all time. And that's what really made the Final Four the Final Four, more than any other event. Even though he had a horrible game uh, and actually shot probably the worst he ever did in college in that particular game. Well, there's a guy he, named Greg Kelser who was Magic Jackson's second player basically on that Michigan State team that played a bunch of years in the NBA. Basically was shutting down as best as he could, Larry Bird. But I think Larry Bird just had so much on his shoulders. But he never acted like any game was too big for him. There's so many Larry Bird stories out there. Um, Bill Walton, who played Larry Bird, said when they were in at the Celtics or on the Celtics, he said at the end of one of their long road trips, Larry always had a goal. And he told all the players in the media that tomorrow, in the last game of this road trip, I'm going to play this game left-handed, at least through three quarters. At the end of three quarters, he scored 27 points left-handed. <laughs> I mean, Larry Bird never backed down to anybody. And for him to do what he did, uh, considering you know all the challenges he had early on, is amazing. So, all right, Ernest, who's your next person? Now? Oh, well, if you say Larry Bird, we've got to go with the, the, the opposite, and that's Irving Magic Johnson. We played one year. At Michigan State in 1979. And again, you had Greg Kelser, who was a junior. Judd Heathcliff had a team that just, I got an opportunity to watch them play at Carolina in December. And Carolina actually beat them in that game. But I was impressed. Now, this was a 6'9 player, which would normally in college basketball be playing center, bring the ball up, handle the ball, disperse the ball. Now, at that time, he had an ugly shot. He actually <laughs> shot from his hip. And it was from an angle. So, you know, if you could get the shot down, that was the real difference. But he just – he changed basketball. The idea or concept, because before that, traditional point guards were six foot one. They were small guys. They passed. They did not shoot. He opened it up where a point guard or point forward or whatever you would call them did not hit he, – he got away from the traditional – uh, a one, a two, a three, a four, a five. You know, five centers a five, power forwards a four, small forwards a three, shooting guards a two. He took the game differently from that, took it away, and had the ball and kept, set the tempo of the play. In one year, he transformed not only college basketball, but basketball as we know it. 
At 6'8 and 6'9, he could cover the court so fast. I mean, we're so used to it with Kevin Durant at 7'1 doing what he's doing. But you're right. I was living in Michigan at that time, and we were watching. We couldn't believe what we were seeing. As a freshman, to come straight out of high school to do as well as he did the first year and then his second year, um, they won it all. But in his whole career at Michigan State, he averaged 17 points. Seven rebound, seven point six rebounds, eight assists. He shot the ball forty six percent, which is not as good as Larry Bird, but still not too bad. And you know we could go on about his pro career, and everybody knows about his heroics there as well. But he did make a huge difference in college basketball, and and then big players thought, hey, I can dribble the ball. It's important for me to dribble the ball. Before that, you didn't want the center to dribble the ball. You told the center not to dribble the ball because the little guys could pick it clean from them. But Magic was just made such a difference. Now, my dad would watch Magic sometimes and say, he's carrying the ball because the way my dad grew up, you had to dribble straight down. You couldn't palm the ball and bring it over like Magic would do sometimes. The old rule of one bounce for every step you made. And the uh, the rules of the game changed to, to that extent. But prior to him, you never saw a, anybody except a point guard or shooting guard carry the ball in backcourt. Big men always went to the front court and they waited for the ball to be brought across the timeline. They never advanced the ball at no time unless they passed the ball. So he, he changed the game entirely in that respect. And the extent Larry Bird did also because – Guys who were 6'9 were supposed to play low post men. They were supposed to set up at the block, turn around, hook shots, shots like that. He he shot outside. He brought the ball up at 6'9. So both of them transformed magic more than anybody else. But, but Larry Larry Bird was known as, as more of a shooter in that respect. But I think universally they're connected, yes. pros and college. You can't say one without the other. Can you name Michigan State's coach who was lucky enough to get Magic Johnson because he played high school at East Lansing where Michigan State's located? Yeah, Judd Heathcote. You're right. So some coaches just, you know, fall into the right place at the right time. Okay, Ernest, my next choice for a top 10 will make you very happy, I'm sure, and that's David Thompson. And you've talked about him already. He played at North Carolina State. State. He was such a slasher, and you're right. I remember seeing him sky like I went, wow. I don't think anybody can get that high. He averaged 25 or 26 points in his career. He had eight rebounds. Um, he shot. Here it is, 55 percent. Now, how many of those you know shots are so close to the basket you can't really miss? Um, now, at that point, you were living in North Carolina. What did North Carolina think of David Thompson at that time? <laughs> We we hated him. Uh, actually, Duke and NC State went on one year's probation uh, because uh, one of them paid for a parking lot for his parents. They paved his driveway. Ooh. He's from Shelby, North Carolina. So Duke and NC State went on probation. So his sophomore year, they couldn't play in the tournament, and they went undefeated. And then the uh, their, his senior year, I mean his junior years, when they won the championship – uh, they lost one game to UCLA. They played a game at uh, St. Louis. It was one of those nationally broadcast games, similar to the Houston UCLA game of 1968. And uh, at that game, uh, Tom Burleson, who was the center, was seven foot four, thoroughly got outplayed by Thompson. So did Keith Wilkes, who we know as Jamal Wilkes when he played for the Warriors, outplayed him also. So they met in the semifinals, and it just happened that year that the Final Four was in Greensboro, North Carolina, so a little bit of home cooking in that respect. So they matched up, and UCLA had a five-point lead with a minute to go, and they blew it and went into overtime. But that was an iconic team because you had Monty Tao, who's five foot five as the point guard. Uh, Rivers was the shooting guard. Thompson was the uh, small forward. Uh, Tim Stoddard, who later pitched for the Baltimore Orioles, was the power forward. And Tom Burleson, who played for the uh, Supersonics and Kings in the NBA, uh, had a hook shot that, but he was, I mean, he was seven foot four, but he's maybe 140 pounds. I mean, very, <laughs> very skinny. Norm Sloan, who came from Florida, was the coach. And they, again, undefeated except for the one game. And you had the rematch. And in overtime, and Walton talks about to the day that he still rues that game. It still settles on her mind. Uh, 
Thompson just took over. And Thompson and, was not six foot eight or nine. He was only six, oh, six foot four. four. Oh yeah. I got to see them play and stand next to him and he was average size. I mean, to the extent other than this great leaping ability and he had no exercises for back then, uh, everybody would put these weights on their ankles. Supposedly they would make you jump higher and they really did that extent. Or, or they try these isometric exercises where you jump off of a, a table or a chair uh -huh. and try to make your arms. And, and now I, at one time, Again, no one will believe this. Let's get this through. I have witnesses. I could dunk a basketball. I'm I'm six two six three, so I could dunk at one time. Cannot any more kids, but I never <laughs> wore the weights or anything. But he was just a a natural talent, and that was just a special team. And again, they beat Marquette and Al McGuire for the championship in '74. But a lot of people there have been comments about the officiating or the home cooking because it was Greensboro, but he was a special talent drafted by the Denver Nuggets. And the, the, everybody remembers the famous dunk contest that he had with uh, Dr. J the last year, the ABA. And he was actually the last leading scorer for the ABA. When they were assimilated into the NBA, he developed some substance abuse problems, was traded to the Seattle Supersonics, and actually fell down the steps of Studio 54 in New York City and destroyed his Achilles tendon and never was the player. But he went to rehab, and for a while he was actually employed by the Hornets as a goodwill ambassador. But he has recovered and, and talks about his recovery and his problems. But a lot of these players we're talking about, a lot, a few of them had substance abuse. Substance abuse problems in the 70s were fairly common. Now you're talking... Are you talking cocaine? Are you talking speed? What are you talking? Yes, yes, yes. Usually cocaine. Cocaine was the drug of the 70s because it was fairly cheap and it worked fairly fast. It was abundantly clear. And we're talking about a lot of guys when they got in the NBA, you went from poverty level to instant millionaire. And because up until 76, you had two leagues competing against themselves, NBA and ABA. Right. You got these outrageous contracts where they had a lot of music was front loaded to bring them in. And that's why they developed those, those particular problems. And Thompson is, it's, it's a, it's a story that keeps people in again, a magnificent talent. He was Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan. <laughs> he really was. He was an outside shooter, defensive player. He, he truly was the prototype for what Michael Jordan would become. Mm. But, but, but again, the pros and back then the, the pros didn't have, the support personnel to guide these young men, so they're kind of out on their own. And coaches weren't that touchy feely type. Yeah. So if you couldn't play, they just cut you. You know, there was no rehab. So I'll talk briefly uh, about my college sports career. I played at a community college, tennis. Wow, I know you're not impressed with that. But I also played soccer, and I was on the soccer team, and we were traveling. Uh, for a tournament and playing several teams in a row. And the guy I was rooming with, I didn't know him too well, and he was sort of a burly guy. And we get into the hotel room, and he goes over the wall and takes the mirror off the wall. And it's the first time I saw Coke, and he made some lines, and he looked at me and says, hey, you want to have some? And I about freaked out of my skin thinking, oh, my gosh, we're going to get busted He's going to have a trip, and I want to get out of here as fast as I can. But I tried to play it cool, like, oh, man, I, I'm cool. I don't, I'm, I'm good right now. And he hadn't did his lines, and he basically just sort of wiped out. And then he says, hey, let's go to the uh, rooftop of this place. And I'm thinking, holy moly, he's going to jump from this rooftop. He's so high or whatever. Uh, fortunately, all the doors were locked, and that didn't happen. But that was my first introduction to college and the – early eighties and, um, cocaine. So you didn't, uh, you didn't notice the guys with the long, uh, little finger fingernail who would use that to snort it with guys would let their little finger down oh, about an that. inch or so. Wow. I, I was approached at that time too, but the, you know, I would do the old, this is really going back into the memory machine. There was an old, uh, skit on Saturday night live with these Greek diners with John Belushi, where they go, no Coke, Pepsi. Yes. So when they would approach me, I would go, no Coke, Pepsi, you know, <laughs> get the laugh, and it would diffuse the situation. Yeah, Pepsi, well, Pepsi, Pepsi. 
Well, pot was very popular in the early 80s and something else called hash, which is something you burn. Um, but coke was the highest or sometimes some other drugs that you could see occasionally. It was cheap. It was available. It was everywhere. Pot was the same thing. It was the abundance. I mean, everybody was, if you went to any gathering or two or three more people, it was there at a party. And because it was cheap, people would give it to you because they'd hook you on it and then you would pay them for it later on. It was a marketing scheme. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, let's move on to the next player. (laughs) I'm sure my son's going to listen and say, Dad, you never told me that story. Um, the next player on my list for a top 10 is not a guy I particularly liked when he was playing, but as I looked at all the all Americans for the seventies and his statistics, I cannot leave Adrian Dantley off the list. Adrian Dantley played at Notre Dame. He was six foot five. He liked to do different post moves. Even at six foot five, he could really shoot, but he was sort of a surly type of guy. He wasn't a warm and cuddly guy and I found out later that he also had a rough um, childhood Um, his dad left his mom he was raised by three women he wasn't sure what he was supposed to be as a man and so he kept on trying to make it up as he went along and just didn't want anybody to see his insecurity and so he got that surly attitude one of the urban legends about him on NBA.com. If you go to NBA.com, they have some legend stories of famous players who played the NBA and some of their background stories. The story goes that he was a smart guy. Dantley got 99 on a history test in ninth grade, and no other student at his school got above 80. So the teacher, who's also his basketball coach, thought that Adrian had cheated. So he had Dantley stand up, and he says, okay, I want you to answer the questions in front of the class. And Dantley got them all right. And then the coach said, I should have never underestimated you. So Dantley was a guy that was six foot four, two forty-five, and he was a little heavy early on. They called him Baby Huey, but he learned a lot of great uh, low post moves at DeMatha High School in Maryland. And for Notre Dame, he averaged 26 points a game, 10 rebounds, only one and a half assists, but he shot 56%. Um, what do you remember about Adrian Dantley, Ernest? Played for the great coach Wooten there at DeMatha, uh, who's probably one of the greatest high school, the greatest high school basketball coach of all time. Uh, the one game that really stands up was when Notre Dame stopped UCLA's 88-game winning streak, which is the all-time record for men's basketball. Uh, and him and John Shoemate, who was the center for Digger Phelps at that time. And that was one of those rare games during the season that would be broadcast was the UCLA uh, Notre Dame game. It was always played at Notre Dame because at that time, Notre Dame did not have a conference in basketball. They had not joined the ACC. So I, I remember the effort there. And I remember it 6'5", six, 6'4", six, more 6'4", than anything else. He played power forward. That's, that's the size factor in basketball so much that a lot of these guys were smaller than what we talk about now, but he did have great footwork. I mean, he was able to run post moves and spin move and the shot, and he had a shot that started at his hip but finished at the top of his head. And because he lost the weight, the shoulders were so large, he could get inside and rebound like a man five or six inches taller than he was. Mm-hmm. It says that when he got the NBA, sometimes he intentionally allowed his first game to be blo- first shot of the game to be blocked, and then the rest of the night he used his head fake and went around the defender. So he would play mind games with people. And then his trade from the Mavericks to the Pistons was the beginning of the Bad Boys, two times NBA champs mm-hmm. in the nineties. Right. All right, Ernest, who's your next player? Well, this is home cooking here, but the greatest point guard I ever saw play was Phil Ford from Rocky Mount, North Carolina. He led, and remember now, there was not a shot clock. So they had in North Carolina something called the Four Corners. Because it wasn't a shot clock, Dean Smith came up with a strategy that everybody hated. <laughs> when Carolina would get the lead, they would send the other four players outside of Phil Ford to the four corners of the front court. And he would dribble and he would weave. And if any of the defenders of the other guys would come towards him and attempt to double-team the ball, he would pass for a wide-open shot. 
and it was a great strategy to blow up. It blew up in the 1975 championship game, 77, excuse me, 77 championship against Marquette when Al Guara won his one championship in the last game he ever played because at that time Carolina got a two one-point lead and went into the four corners and the momentum just went away. But Dean said, if you're not going to have a shot clock, which he associated shot clock with the three-point line, which would come in the next decade, you had to have both to speed up the game. And he actually went to the four corners to show that you could take the air out of the ball and make it a very, very boring game. And when we get to the 80s, we'll talk about what particular game led to that. But uh, he went to the pros, became the rookie of the year at the NBA for the old Kansas City Royals, which you won't remember, who <laughs> moved to Sacramento. And he developed an alcoholism problem and went through recovery became an assistant coach uh, at UNC and now works in the fundraising part of UNC. But at that at time, in the backcourt that he had when he went into pros with Otis Birdsong, who was a shooting guard from Houston, was one of the best young backcourts in the NBA. But he, he, like Pete Maravich, if kids go to YouTube and watch some of the tape and see, he actually – it looked like he had the ball on a string. I mean, mm -hmm. the way he could utilize it and shoot it. Underrated shooter at that time, but he was the ACC tournament MVP his freshman year. And that's another big change we haven't talked about. Up until 1974, freshmen were ineligible to play. So you only had three years of eligibility. Mm -hmm. And Dean Smith was a big push. You know, he, he never wanted freshman eligibility. But as the game became more relevant on TV and more money poured in and more guys were – you had the Spencer Haywood lawsuit with the Supreme Court in 1970, which basically allowed kids to leave college before they graduated. There was more of an emphasis to get what you could out of the players before they went to the NBA and ABA because your first player who went from high school to the NBA, which was Moses Malone, was in 1971. Well, Phil Ford, no surprise to you, was a parade high school All-American. He won the Wooden Award. He was a three-time consensus All-American. He was ACC Player of the Year. I mean, he had great stats, too. Uh, as a point guard, averaged 18.6 points a game, two rebounds, but six uh, assists a game. So he could score some. He could um, pass the ball around. And a three-time All-CC and all three-time All-American, you could not, you had to put him on the list. I feel I I think that's a good choice. But um, my next player is Bernard King. Played at Tennessee. He was a shooter forward. He averaged twenty-six points a game. He thirteen rebounds, two assists. He was a great player. But most people remember him playing for the New York Knicks in the 80s and blowing out his, I think it was a knee, but before that, he was a dominant, dominant player. Do you agree, Ernest? The Ernie and Bernie show. Him <laughs> and Ernie Grunfield for Coach Don DeVoe for the Volunteers of Tennessee. It was a team that never made it into the tournament because they played in the same conference as Kentucky. Kentucky always went in with eight of Rupp until about 1975, until they finally drove his racist but out of the SEC, <laughs> he was forced to retire, shall we say. I'll just say. I'm not a big Adolph Rupp fan. Uh, we can go down on that corner for another part. But, again, one of the best turnaround mid-range jump shots I've ever seen. Got an opportunity to watch him play with the Bullets at the end of his career after he was recovering from the knee injury. Put 50 up in a game uh, when he was with the Knicks. But he was just a pure shooter. He had a beautiful shot, and him and Grunfield made a great tandem. But unfortunately, it didn't make the tournament because second-place teams didn't get in until about 76. But you're right. He was an amazing talent in that respect. He was a two-time All-American, three-time All-SEC player. And I guess in the last couple of years, there's a YouTube movie about him and his life and some of the opportunities and missed opportunities he's had in his life. Ernest, who's your next player on our top 10? I'm going to go back Carolina Bias again. Bob McAdoo. Big McAdoo. game Bob. Only played one year for Carolina because he had gone to Vincenzo's junior college, and he's the only junior college player that Dean Smith ever picked up. 
and basically didn't have the grades, came from Greensboro, North Carolina, came in, brought Carolina to a Final Four. That was the Final Four of 1972. And that was a team with Mike O'Core and a few other players. But he was the first center to shoot outside. I mean, he was one of the first ones. He had a sweet little 25-foot shot, 20-foot shot, went up with both hands and shot it. Great rebounder, great defender. Uh, actually was two-time MVP when he made the NBA for the Buffalo Braves and won several NBA championships with the Lakers and is still coaching the NBA to this day. But one of the sweetest little jump shots. And again, he was the first center to shoot outside. Traditionally, centers went under the basket, got the ball, posted up. But he was able to develop this. That's the transition we saw. Basketball in the 1970s was the point guard pulled it up, the center camped up wide, the two forwards went in the corner, and that was it. And that was everybody's offense. But we saw this innovation. You added that with the beginning of the ability to dunk and with a wider lane. It, the game changed. And when it became more on TV and more games were exposed, you got more kids to participate. I mean, it kind of exploded when they could see it on TV. Right. They started mimicking. They wanted to be Magic. They wanted to be Bob McAdoo. They wanted to be Phil Ford. They picked up these newer skills, and that's what you saw in the 80s with newer players. Well, in only one year with North Carolina, he averaged 19.5 points and 10 rebounds a game. And I will always love Bob McAdoo because – one of my first basketballs was a Wilson basketball, and it had Bob McAdoo right on there. Love that basketball. Just a rubber basketball, and we played a lot. All right, we're down to our last person. I don't know if Ernest is going to match me in this one or go off the board. My last top 10 player for the 1970s is a guy named Butch Lee. For years, Ernest and I have talked about how you got to have a great point guard to play in the tournament, the March Madness. And way back when, in the 1974 to 78, Butch Lee played for Marquette. And here was a guy that wasn't very tall. He was only six foot oh on a six foot on a great day, 185 pounds. But man, he controlled the ball. It was like on a string, like you're talking about it with Phil Ford. He was the floor general, and in the 1977 championship, he was the player that made it happen. Um, he was from Puerto Rico, of all places, and you don't think of great basketball players coming from there. But he was two-time All-American. He won the Naismith Award. He was the NCAA Tourney Most Valuable Player. He only averaged 15 points a game, three rebounds, and three assists. And you think his number should be higher than that. But he made it work, and so he's my last top 10 player. This is where we get to disagree. I'm going to go with someone we mentioned already because he was part of a team that went undefeated, and that's Kent Benson, who was a dominant center for probably the best team of the 70s, that 76 Indiana team, which really dominated for two years, one loss in two years. So I'm going to go with Kent Benson. I liked Lee. I mean, but but to me, it was Jerome Whitehead. It was Al McGuire. I mean, it was a lot of things that led that team to a championship. And they, again, that's a team that got very hot because they barely slipped in to the NCAAs at that time. But there's some guys outside the top 10 that I'd like to mention that I really enjoyed playing back then. And and guys' names are forgotten. Ernie D. Gregorio of Providence, that great Providence team with Marvin Bad News, uh, Bad <laughs> News Barnes. I mean, that was – D. Gregorio would throw three-quarter court passes to guys under the basket. He was amazing to watch in that respect. Uh, I already talked about John Shoemate, Scott May – who was uh, automatic in the NCAA's 1975 and 76 shooting. Henry Bibby, the great point guard for UCLA. And those, you know, we seem to forget that 1971 team, UCLA won without Jabbar and without Walt. Scott Patterson uh, was the center. They beat uh, Jamal Wilkes. Jamar Wilkes wasn't on that team either. Wow. That was a no-name team that was able to win a championship against uh, Kansas and, and against Villanova. Uh, you had two teams in that tournament that got disqualified in the Final Four, uh, Western Kentucky with Jim McDaniels because they had signed with the NBA, ABA, and Howard Porter, Villanova. He, too, had disqualified himself. Dwight Lamar, who averaged 41 points a game from southwest Louisiana State. 
and at Fly Williams in 1978. Fly, Fly Williams. We- Fly Williams. Oh, I got to tell you this story. Fly Williams uh, went to Austin P, which is a small college in Kentucky, and they had a chant with him every time he would shoot shoot the basketball. They'd say "Go P" because it was Austin <laughs> P. And as type of players you had, I mean, there's some great talent there. Ed Redliff, uh, who played on the Unfortunately, 1976 Olympic team, which was cheated out of a championship. Excuse me, the 72 championship team of the Olympics was just cheated out of championship. Richard Washington with UCLA. Uh, I mean, there was some great players. David Greenwood, who was with UCLA also at the same time. Larry Mike Jeminski with the Duke team, which lost to Kentucky in 1980 championship. I mean, there was some great teams and some great talent. And there's some great games. I mean, the best basketball game I ever saw was the 1974 ACC championship. And it was Maryland and NC State. This was the Maryland team with John Lucas and Lynn Elmore and Tom McMillan. Tom McMillan was the number one recruit in the nation. And they played, the final score of the game was 102-101. And this was back at a time when, only one team could go to the NCAA. So they were playing for getting in the tournament. And part of the game is still available on YouTube. That entire game, neither one of those two teams committed a turnover. Oh, wow. The entire game. And it was just so well played. It's the best basketball game I'd ever seen. I've had an opportunity to watch it back. I'd heard at a time when I watched it, I didn't realize that, but I've watched the tape since then. And it's true. They never turn the ball over. And that's why you get a score of, one oh, uh, you know, one oh two, one oh one, four, and it didn't go to overtime either. That was mm-hmm. regulation. Uh, I actually got to play basketball with the MVP of the ACC in 1976. That was Rod Griffin. Uh, he was an All American player out of Fairmont, North Carolina, and we used to play, go down to Fairmont and play pickup basketball with him. But it was just some great talent. Jack Givens, who scored 40 for Kentucky when they won the championship in 77. I mean, there's this amazing talent at that time that you would read about and you'd wait to the tournament to see them play. Now, if, if they played an ACC team, I would get to see them. But the majority of these guys, all you know is what you read about them. I never got to see Bo Lamar play, but I would read about him in Sports Illustrated. And that was the great thing about that time. Your imagination would run free. Right. And and there's so few NBA games on TV. Again, you didn't get the opportunity. Kelly Trapuga played for Notre Dame, was a great shooting forward. Freeman Williams for Portland well, State. Well, we'll get to the 80s talent. before long. Okay. And right. this is our first master class in 70s basketball. I think our next one is probably going to be 70s baseball and talk about Major League Baseball. Or we'll go football. Who knows? But during this time of the coronavirus, this is just a way to walk down Um, memory lane and for you folks who weren't around at that time youtube is a wonderful place to go and you'll be surprised how good the basketball players are or if you want to strike up a conversation with a a older neighbor who's you know maybe by themselves and you can just talk down the hallway they'll probably love talking about basketball as much as these two old guys so for ernest watts and paul arnold thanks for listening to pardon the confusion masterclass